Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. How did it come to this? Is this it? Is this all you can conjure, Saruman? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweedin. Today's episode is So It Begins, it being the Battle of Helm's Deep. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Are you ready for a war? The Battle of Helm's Deep begins today, and with that, one of the most ballyhooed big battles in all of cinema. So for today's discussion, I want to talk about big battles on screen, which are nearly as old as films themselves. By the early 1910s, silent films were being made to tell war stories, and all-time bigoted assholes like D.W. Griffith were among the first to bring Mm. them to screen in tellings of the American Civil War, the genocide of the Indians, and so on. As the medium grew and expanded, the ability to capture large-scale battles did too. Soviet films like Battleship Potemkin in the 1920s was a huge part of that roadmap, and the 50s and 60s saw a relative explosion of them with the rise of biblical epics and movies like Lawrence of Arabia stateside. Meanwhile, Akira Kurosawa was creating giant battle set pieces in his films like Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood. And Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory provided a devastating depiction of trench warfare from World War I. War movies, the nominal catalyst for expansive battle set pieces, would continue to be popular from there on, as World War II provided a narrative backdrop for several decades, giving way to Vietnam War movies like Apocalypse Now and Platoon. In my youth, there appeared to be a resurgence of big battles following the release of Braveheart in 1995. This movie gave way to several Gibson war films itself, like The Patriot and We Were Soldiers, Mm. but really opened the door for giant sweeping productions like Saving Private Ryan, Gladiator, The Thin Red Line, and more. But I'm less concerned with giving a superficial history of cinematic battles, and instead just want to riff with Emily on what we look for in big battles and what some of our favorites are. So Emily, a big battle is happening on screen. What do you want to see? Not Mel Gibson. Um, I think that that's basically <laughs> my new position. Um, no, it's funny because I actually like in kind of advance of this episode, I, I was thinking a lot about this because I don't think like I, I like battle scenes and in, in the way that like I like any well executed scene in a movie, but I, I hadn't really thought of them as like their own kind of like mini genre of sorts. And so when I was watching um, Braveheart again recently and and not having and like really kind of noticing for the first time that the the battle scenes the the totally indistinct um uh battle scenes in Braveheart were just like not connecting for me it was only then that i was kind of starting to realize oh god there is actually something that that i'm looking for there and i think it is kind of a combination of a couple of things like i think in the first instance i'm i'm looking for like um order I guess, um, but like, you know, meaning and purpose. And I think what I kind of mean by that is like, you know, narrative meaning, not just that like um, the battle scene is important for the overall story or the plot or the characters or whatever, but like that there is um, 
there is a sense that the director knows why these things are important um, and not just because like, you know, oh, because it moves the plot forward or oh, because it gets the blood pumping. But like, why does every single shot that we see um, in these battle scenes, why is it happening the way that it is? Um, and I think there's like a, 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 a an inherent chaos to battle scenes that means that having a really clear sense of the storyboarding and the hows and whys of the battle becomes that much more important. And it's actually something I was noticing a lot in the, the Braveheart um, battle scenes um, was that they, they felt kind of half baked to me in a lot of ways. Um, like the, the first thing that I kind of hit on was like, oh, it's because they don't have any score. Like it is just the sound effects. Uh, it's just guys grunting and the sound of like blood splatters. And, and, and that felt like a little unfinished to me. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily because like you can't have a battle scene that doesn't have like big sweeping music behind it. Of course you can. I just think it felt to me like a kind of culmination of a lot of the problems um, that I saw in Braveheart, which I do still like as a movie. But like it just felt like there was not a clear sense of purpose. There was not Sagar voice clarity of purpose. Um, so, so I'm always looking for like a kind of sense of like, this matters for a reason, um, either to the overall story, either to an argument that the director is making, or just to the like, you know, specific frames, <laughs> you know, I want the things that I see to, to mean something and I want them to, to kind of feel like they flow and, 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 and um, have a sort of a sense of genuine artistic direction. But then I think the other thing that I'm also looking for um, is a bit of, uh, <laughs> is a bit more style and flair. Um, cause I think we're, we're kind of in an age now where, um, you know, sh short of like the kind of old admiralty naval battles, which we don't really get a huge amount of anymore, except I guess in the occasional Star Wars, um, a lot of the battles we're seeing are like superhero battles, right? Where it's like single or a team mm -hmm. of incredibly OP people going against lots and lots and lots of other people or lots and lots and lots of other creatures or whatever, you know, like I think Endgame and Infinity War are kind of good examples of that battle style that I mean. Um, and so I think a lot of the battle scenes that are um, that we see in, in, in movies of the last 10 or 15 years all kind of blur together to me because they don't have a kind of distinct authorial style in them. Um, Helm's Deep is the perfect example of a battle that will never blur into another battle. Even another of Peter Jackson's battles, um, it, it is so, it has such a clear sense of style and, and, um, and, and kind of flair, artistic flair that it will always be a standalone battle. And some of the other battles that I think we'll, we'll talk about in a bit are also have that where, you know, they, they are not just battle scenes for the sake of showing a battle. They, they, they are a, a bit of a kind of personality piece for a director, like in the way that a kind of, you know, we associate like a walk and talk with Aaron Sorkin. Um, but like people walking and talking is, a standard piece in movies and shows and everything. And so the ability to make it like uh, a really unique thing and to, and to have those scenes that are otherwise really mundane and be a kind of calling card for a director is I think also something that, that I feel like is really important to me in in a battle scene. And I know that is like so antithetical to like what the actual purpose of battle scenes is, which is like blood pumping, uh, rip the head off of uh, the person sitting next to you and then shotgun a beer. But like, I think that's the best I can distill it to right now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's going to surprise no one that when we get into our favorite battles, I'm going to mention Braveheart a couple of times. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of that, as once we get into it, I think it'll make sense in terms of me seeing that in 1995 and then seeing that evolve into something like Helm's Deep six or seven years after the fact. Yeah, but yeah. Um, for me, I think I agree with you in the first. Uh, the first thing is that it has to have some kind of narrative pull. And like you said, it's not something that 
this is how the battle fits into the three-hour movie or whatever, but it's like, what's actually happening in this battle? Is there a story within it, kind of? Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that I think Game of Thrones, for all its problems and all its problems with various battle episodes, kind of did well, especially near the end of its run, which, again, might shock some people. (laughs) But I'm thinking specifically in episode uh or season seven episode four the spoils of war um and then again in the penultimate episode the bells uh the one where daenerys burns everyone down um the show uses characters like Bronn and Arya very specifically like they are the people that are kind of underfoot in this war and we're watching it happen with Bronn, who is kind of a sellsword he's a mercenary for hire um and right before the battle starts like he talks to jamie lannister about well i've got my gold i can just ride off and be happy for the rest of my days and then of course in the battle itself um there is like a moment where he has to choose between a bag of gold or going to save his buddy jamie um so it's stuff like that that like and that's not like mind-blowing narrative structure or anything but it's kind of like through lines you can follow in a battle um because I do think Braveheart's battles have a purpose, but their battles are just shit happens. Yeah. Like a lot of men run into each other, limbs go flying, heads get chopped off. There's violence, there's clanking, but there's no like real through line except that you know like halfway through the battle, William Wallace is going to signal the nobles to ride in or something. Yeah. But it's not like there is a narrative through line through um that so i really think it is good and a lot of times this can just be done by showing faces in the crowd um like helms deep has so many great faces and some faces we only see once like the guy who only has one eye who orders the arrows to be fired everyone knows exactly who i'm talking about or the old guy who fires the first arrow because his hand is shaky um it's just a great way of like situating in it besides just our main characters so um, a little narrative subplot, and I think Helm's Deep is exceptional at this, and we'll talk about it when we get into our scenes today. Um, part of me also just likes to see the scope and scale of production. That is where something like Braveheart in 1995 really blew me away, because I had never seen anything on that scale, um, with that many horses, that many extras. Um, and then uh, on top of that, you have to actually make your battle feel something so it's not weightless like an mcu battle because it's all like cgi aliens mm-hmm. um so that's where you need to have like really expert sound design um whether it's horses or the guns going off or men screaming in pain um helms deep we're going to hear a lot of great metal sounds and stone crunching sounds um all of that stuff really kind of brings it alive because i do think war on film really should be a sensory experience first um because this is as close to war as most of the audience is going to get. Um, And I really think that that's a key part of it. And then also I'm just a boy sometimes and I like violence. (laughs) Um, And as you may know, I don't like horror movies. So um, I don't, I can't go and watch the latest scream because I will not enjoy it because I dislike horror. Um, So war movies and big battles are where I can get kind of like the cathartic violence I look for in um cinema um because you can see it on mass scale and it's funny how like who drew barrymore's boyfriend getting gutted in the opening of scream uh like that like still haunts me to this day i cannot think of that before bed but like sandor clegane or william wallace just gutting someone on a battlefield doing the same exact thing perhaps with even grosser like internal organs leaking out like doesn't faze me at all i really can't tell you why that is um but it is just something about 
maybe it's just the fact that I'm in a place to accept violence, whereas in a horror movie, you're trying to run away from the violence, whereas in a war movie, you're running into the violence. Yeah. Um, maybe there's something that's kind of subconscious happening there with me as well. I think that's really interesting as well, because one of the things that I was thinking about in advance of recording this, um, and I still haven't seen it, and I know I need to see it, but I just feel like I need to be in the right mood for it, is the new um, adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, and I was kind of ready to just ignore it. Um, there are a lot of like kind of book adaptations, especially Netflix produced ones ones that I'm like <laughs> plenty happy to just pretend don't exist. But this one like really kind of piqued my interest because they show um in in the trailer they they show a shot of um of some of the boys in the trenches. Um, and they shoot it like a horror movie. And it is like you can hear these these young men screaming like their children as a tank. I think it's a tank rolls over the top of their trench. Um, and, and it's shot with the sort of edginess and the jumpiness and, and the kind of static um, uh, uh, kind of horror, the static kind of shock of, of, a, of a horror film. And that was the kind of moment when I went, oh, wait, hang on. I actually do have to give this adaptation a shot. And I, I still haven't done it, but I will give it a shot. Um, because I think like that, that, that kind of for me and that distinction that you're talking about there between the, the sort of um, horror violence and, and the, the war movie violence is something that's really interesting. Um, because I think um, what it kind of gets to is how, how you are thinking about the the kind of the war and the violence um and how you are thinking about it narratively and i think the you know all quiet on the western front is effectively uh it's not effectively it is a book about how fucking atrocious uh world war one was world war one and it's and it's aftermath um and and how it just completely obliterated and uh, several generations of of people in germany men in germany uh, and led to the rise of the nazis yada 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 um but isn't it is a fundamentally anti-war um movie or book rather and then movie um and so in an age when we've got the like the you know the weightless battles like you're saying of marvel where where like you don't even go see a movie anymore that doesn't have violence like it's just almost impossible even movies that are ostensibly non-violent movies have violence in them there's just such a hyper normalization of violence um the, it, it's clear that the directors have director directors have had to think about how to kind of um revitalize violence on screen. Um, and so rather than filming it in the traditional, you know, Saving Private Ryan, Ben-Hur style war movie approach to, to war violence to battles, they've gone for a more horror movie approach, at least in that 10 seconds that I saw. And that, that was really fascinating to me because it means they've sat and thought about the mechanics of war in a really interesting way. And I'm, I'm, I swear to God, I'm not trying to like shit all over you liking Braveheart because I do really like it. But like, it was one of the things that I found fascinating about Braveheart as well is that like, I think some of the battle scenes would have been a lot more compelling to me if they'd if they'd filmed them a bit more like a an actual medieval battle and i'm not saying you know i'm a stickler for historical accuracy i truly don't give a fuck about military history but mm -hmm. like one of the things that's really um that was really genuinely terrifying about um medieval warfare is um is the pauses between the actual uh skirmishes so you know you would have the cavalry go first and then you would have the the foot soldiers go and there were gaps of you know 20 minutes an hour in between each of these these skirmishes and that's where you build up the tension and and it's actually those gaps were so heavily um the kind of source of of true horror on about on a medieval battlefield that like one of the first ever written incidences we have of um PTSD um is actually Dante Alighieri um writing about his um his his 
symptoms, his memory, his panicked memory of being on a battlefield, the Battle of Monteparity, I think, um, where he describes how fucking atrocious it was for him to have to sit there and wait in that gap between between skirmishes. And and I think, you know, that's the kind of thing where um, it's not the fighting that's the scary bit. It's the waiting that's scary. That's the kind of thinking about... Um, about battles that I think makes Helm's Deep so extraordinary and is also something I think like I'm increasingly looking for in, in these in these war movies. Uh, you basically just quoted Perry Green Took there. It's like being on the edge of a battle is bad enough, but waiting for one, that's even worse. Uh, so very nicely done. Very nicely done. Points to your Scottish friend. Um, no, but I, I, I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, one last thing I'll say I kind of like, and I wouldn't say this is a necessity, uh, but I really do like having a clear sense of geography when we're going to have an expansive battle scene. Um, I think, once again, Helm's Deep is a fantastic example of this. Like, you clearly know where everyone is in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't even something that's true across the Lord of the Rings films. <laughs> yeah. uh, in our upcoming uh, episode on Osgiliath, <laughs> I am going to ex- like express a lot of confusion about exactly what side of the river Frodo and Faramir are on, because it really doesn't track with how Osgiliath is built. But um, and like geography, um, like it might not matter. Like I don't think it matters so much in say the Braveheart battles because it is two like open armies meeting in an open field, um, so that matters a little less. But like something like a siege of a castle, like Helm's Deep, like they are very deliberate with where the causeway is where the hornberg is and granted tolkien like kind of described it enough that you know you can build out your own little map but like it's actually kind of relevant to how they stage the action in the movie um so they know exactly when to have legolas go shield surfing and what set of stairs he should go (laughs) shield surfing down um i I just like that there's kind of like a geographical congruence to it um to mention one of those weightless uh, MCU films, I think the first Avengers from 2012, when they do the quote unquote Battle of New York, um, they actually do a pretty solid job of saying, you know, Grand Central Station is ground zero, like kind of literally. <laughs> um, and then they uh, like sit, make a five block radius, you know, Cap calls out what streets they're not going south and north against. And like it, it, you just clearly understand where everything is. So as like, say, Hawkeye goes from fighting on the ground with Cap to like up elsewhere to like snipe with his arrow. Like you understand where he's going, where it's in relation to the other four Avengers, yada, yada. I'm not going to bore you with the (laughs) Battle of New York, but it's kind of nice when you, they don't have to really uh, spend a lot of time where you, you really shouldn't have to think about these things logistically. Um, And when they think about the geography, like they do so nicely in um, the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, I think it just, it just starts clicking in a way like mentally and narratively that just like feels satisfying, even if it's not like anything significant or special about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, okay. So something like shattered in my brain today and I decided that I'm going to become an unironic um, monster verse defender, which is like those five Godzilla. Um, what was it? Godzilla King Kong. I think they did like a Mothra one or Mothra featured in one of them uh, movies from the mid 2010s. Um, the first of which was Godzilla done by Gareth Edwards, who also directed partially Rogue One. Um, and I think they're brilliant. Um, like, not like, they're not like artistic marvels, but they're like really fucking good monster movies. And somehow, for some reason today, I decided to start defending them um, earnestly. But, but, <laughs> but one of the things that I think is like really worth defending, especially in that first Godzilla movie, is the sense of geography. And it is shot like a war movie. And it's shot like one particular war movie, which is 
uh, Full Metal Jacket, um, and and in the the Vietnam portions of Full Metal Jacket, which I always love, which they you know they show this kind of more um, urban warfare element to uh, Full Metal Jacket, um, to sorry to the Vietnam War uh, that I think most Vietnam uh, movies tended to do. But but the thing that is so successful about Gareth Edwards' Godzilla is um, he's really thought about what it would look like to fight something in a city, and one of the key components of a city is skyscrapers. Um, believe it or not, nobody in Scotland will believe. <laughs> that there are skyscrapers in real cities, but other cities have them. Um, but but one of the things that skyscrapers are really good at doing is hiding other larger things. So it's not like a traditional Kong movie or even a traditional Godzilla movie where you're seeing the monster the whole time and you're seeing the monster with pretty much unimpeded um, views and like, you know, all of the kind of skyscrapers have been artfully cut away so that you can always see the monster puppet. Um, you only see Godzilla in, in the Godzilla movie from like the last 10 minutes of the movie. And otherwise it's almost, he's almost always obscured in some way by, by the urban architecture. And, and that is, I think something that works really well in, in a lot of these kind of, especially successful battle scenes. Um, one of the ones that I'm probably won't be able to talk a huge amount about is uh, the Big Red One, um, which is a great and slightly uh, forgotten uh, World War II movie starring Mark Hamill, um, and 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 that is is um, it, it, it features the European Front, and so that features quite a bit of, of of a mix of kind of urban warfare and and sort of beach style warfare, um, and that's another one that really handles the geography well in a way that like heightens the tension, and so you're not just reliant on like the threat of someone getting their head cut off, which is, of course, a very important and real threat in battle, but that's like not as visually or narratively interesting as it is when the threat also comes from the environment that you're in. And 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 I think it is, um, it is something that is not uh, treated with as much respect as it should, which is really funny given one of the battles we will talk about in a second, and it's, uh, and the fact that the whole, you know, battle itself actually hinges on uh, the environment in, in which it takes place. I really like that. Um, but as you say, let's get into some of our favorite battles. So uh, why don't you hit me with a couple that you really like? Oh, boy. Um, so, <laughs> no, I will hold off on this one. Uh, so appropriately, I'll tee up one of the ones that I know we're going to talk about in a second with uh, one of my favorite battles. And ironically, this isn't just because I'm like a shit-eating Rogue One fan, but the Battle of Scarif um, in Rogue One <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is is brilliant. Um, and it is brilliant for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one is that it echoes the famous Ride of the Valkyries scene from Apocalypse Now when all the uh, Yankees and their choppers are blasting fascist music as they gun down a whole bunch of Vietnamese people uh, in a country that they invaded for no fucking reason. Um, and, and you know, Gareth Edwards slash Tony Gilroy take um, that image, that iconic image um, from from Apocalypse Now and reverse and say, well, what if the people doing the really cool shit uh, bit with, with the Ride of the Valkyries, what if they were the good guys? Um, and that is a great question to ask, because I would love to be able to cheer for the people doing the cool thing. Um, and then it t makes uh, just a really beautiful use of a, a kind of quirky and interesting landscape. And one of the things that is also kind of more meaningful and light of Andor and Andor's emphasis on hydropower is the fact that they set up this um, archive center, this data center um, that is powered by 
uh, by hydropower. Uh, and so that means that, you know, they needed a planet with a lot of water. And so you have this cool kind of tropical archipelago style base setup. And so you see the people running from the, the water to the sand and the water to the sand. And sometimes the water is an impediment and sometimes the sand is an impediment. And also you've got all of these beautifully done rows of trees that get in the way and obscure what you're able to see. Another great sort of Gareth Edwards using the environment moment is when, uh, is when uh, Chariot and Bayes uh, are fighting some of the stormtroopers on the beach and they don't see the the walker, the Imperial walker, until literally the last second because it's all obscured by the palm trees and the dust. That's another great moment. Um, but that, that whole battle, I think, is really, really underrated, not just like in terms of the Star Wars canon of battles, but like in terms of battles generally for being a really excellently executed battle sequence. Oh yeah, I, I absolutely love that entire sequence. It kind of has what we were talking about in terms of having like an internal narrative between like, okay, you know, Bodhi has to get like the master switch or whatever, while Jin and Cass have to, you know, infiltrate the building and find the, what, Stardust data file, um, all stuff that kind of happens during the entire quote unquote battle slash heist scene. Um, but I like that there's a clear like narrative and it's not just a bunch of action figures smashing against each other. Yeah. Um, and then also it's... Uh, it's an homage or whatever to one of my other favorite war movies, uh, The Guns of Navarone, um, which nice. is, it's not like a war battle sequence they have. It's more of like a sabotage and infiltration. So kind of what Jin and Cass are doing uh, specifically. Um, but it has a lot of the same imagery um, because that, that is set like in the Mediterranean during World War II. Um, so it has a lot of the same kind of beach vibes and um, kind of the verticality that we see in the internal Imperial base uh, kind of is uh, the cliff faces and rock faces that the heroes in Guns of Navarone have to navigate. So um, I think it's an excellent battle. I think the entire third act of Rogue One is pretty much unimpeachable. Yes. Uh, so uh, yeah, great choice. And also a great lead in to my first choice, <laughs> um, which is actually the Battle of Yavin, yeah. uh, the space battle to end A New Hope, Star Wars 1977. Um, it is about a 10 minute sequence at the end of the film um, and is... Everyone knows what it is, right? Luke uh, <laughs> flies with the fellow rebel pilots. Um, basically, all of them get God, except for like Biggs and maybe one other dude in a Y-Wing. Uh, My boy. <laughs> oh, Wedge. Sorry, sorry. I mixed that one up. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Luke blows up the Death Star um, at the end with an assist from Han Solo and the Force. Um, it's just such a succinctly well done 10 minute action mm -hmm. sequence. Like, they have a clear objective. Um, this is how they're going to do it. They talk about it, like having a mission briefing ahead of a big battle is always fun too, mm -hmm. um, because it kind of sets up the stakes in a narrative, like without kind of being heavy handed or too handholdy. Um, so you kind of know what they have to do. You know, the stakes they're up against. You already know what the Death Star is capable of. Um, and then when you actually get to see Vader, like enter the fray in his own little ship that looks different from everyone else, you're like, oh shit, what is going on? Um, John Williams's score to this, it's literally just called the Battle of Yavin. I think it's 10 minutes and 43 seconds of pure brilliance. <laughs> um, it works in all the A New Hope light motifs you would think would in there, mainly the, what's it called, the Force theme uh, as, you know, various things are happening and the little Star Wars main theme uh, when Luke's turning off his targeting computer. I think you can probably hear some of these audio cues as I talk about mm -hmm. them. Um, and it is... Also, just like the battle itself is kind of what Star Wars is, or at least what the original trilogy of Star Wars is, yeah. is kind of like the tension between technology and spirituality. <sighs> um, and they kind of synthesize that down into Luke turning off his computer and shooting it based on vibes and blowing up the Death Star all the same. 
um, Han, you know, kind of coming out of nowhere to like be a better guy than we thought he was. Um, all that stuff. It just all works character wise. It all works thematically with what Star Wars is. Um, and it's just also an impressive production, knowing that it's a bunch of guys driving by like a little plastic trench they built with Jeeps and lighting fireworks. Um, and for it, for that to become that. Um, just kind of blows my mind. Uh, I think it's like one of the best sequences ever in film. Yeah. Uh, so good that Top Gun, uh, Maverick basically redid it for their climax and it also banged yeah. a hell of a lot. Um, it's basically the Death Star trench run and it was so good. Um, so that's my first pick, uh, the Battle of Yavin. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like there really is nothing, uh, nothing that comes close. Uh, and I think it's also so funny because there's so much of that, you know, I talked about clarity of purpose and let's talk about people with no fucking clarity of purpose. AKA George Lucas. Because um, cause a lot of the really kind of crucial parts of that battle were added after the fact. So like the whole idea of like the the Death Star um approaching Yavin, um, not part of the original script, something they added in post. Um, but like what a magnificent addition because it, it adds that like it's this double sense of location. It's like one, they gotta fuck this thing up before it fucks them up. Um, but two, um you can effectively, if you are on base on Yavin, look up into the sky above you and see this battle and then hear over the comms that this dumbass hick boy has just turned off his targeting <laughs> computer. And and that adds like all of these incredible layers of like, oh God, they're just so fucked on every every possible level and then the fact like like you say it's only 10 minutes is is mind-boggling to me because um maybe it's maybe because 10 minutes felt a lot longer the first time i watched it uh, however many decades ago but like that always feels like a full third act to me like a full third act to me it doesn't feel like 10 minutes it feels like the whole kind of point and purpose of the movie and in many ways it isn't um in many ways it isn't um and there's nothing inevitable about the battle of yavin um what's really inevitable is 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 the you know the conclusion luke coming to the conclusion that he has to be who you know be who he is going to become um but that could happen anywhere and there's nothing inevitable about the battle of yavin and i think the fact that there is nothing inevitable about it makes it that much better um and, and that kind of has that element of like the choices that were made leading up to this were important choices um, which is, I think, the kind of thing that makes Helm's Deep so so helpful and so interesting in in the book and the, the movie alike is that there is nothing inevitable about these battles. Um, and whereas in some lesser war movies that you know are out there, there there is a kind of inevitability to battles, not because they are you know sort of narratively signposted, but because you just know that this is a movie that must have a battle in it. Um, the fact that there could be a, a version of Star Wars out there or a version of, you know, the two towers out there where there isn't a battle, I think gives it that additional kind of power and and kind of vitality. So I'll go uh, next here because I feel like I should get the Braveheart thing out of the way <laughs> since we've talked about it so much. Um, there are two giant uh, battles in Braveheart, um, like kind of two armies meeting on an open field. Um, the first one is at Falkirk. The second one is at Sterling. Uh, those names mean nothing to me, though I assume they mean something to Emily. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the first one, uh, the Battle of Falkirk, and mostly about like the first part of it, um, because I think it's very... Um, informative in terms of how a lot of war movies function after the fact. Um, and also in terms of Helm's Deep specifically, I think the ending is kind of a play on what happens in the Battle of Falkirk. Um, the first thing is Mel Gibson, who is a shitty person who sucks. I am sorry that we're spending so much time talking about his work today. Um, 
he opens the Battle of Falkirk with this giant rousing speech, uh, which itself has kind of become a big trope. Um, we even see uh, Vigo Mortensen do one in Return of the King. Oh. And I do think it's a, Vigo's a little <laughs> iffy on there. It's um, Say what you will about Mel Gibson. He knows how to deliver that rallying uh-huh. speech. Um, so um, I think that's a big one. It's like before people yell, like go into war, um, we're used to kind of having like a big rousing speech. Game of Thrones does it a ton and it does it really well, actually. Um, like Stannis, who is like the worst public speaker in the world, like his entire rallying speech is come with me and take the city. Like there's like no pomp and circumstance, no greater purpose. Just like we're going to go and fuck shit up. And like, that's perfect for him. Whereas a character like Tyrion Lannister has a bunch of jokes in his rallying speech. We're going to come out the postern gate and fuck them in the ass. Right. Um, so, you know, stuff like that. So, um, I think like the pre-war rallying speech is a big trope. Um, but what I think really makes uh, Falkirk stand out to me is the cal- cavalry charge. Um, because in the story, the Scottish have no heavy horse. Uh, so the English, when they form their army, just basically plan to uh, mow them over with their heavy horse charge. Um, and it's a very like dramatic sequence in the movie where um, the Scottish infantry just kind of like hold the line as the horses bear down on them, coming closer and closer and closer. William Wallace, he's yelling, hold, like hold. Um, and then finally, like when essentially they can see the whites of the horse's eyes, <laughs> um, they all pick up these wooden spears and then this entire line of horses just run and skewer themselves on um, all these wooden stakes, and then the Scottish people are able to take out the riders after they fall from their horses, and that basically turns the battle in favor of the Scottish, who end up winning the battle. I have no idea if that's historically accurate in any way, uh, but um, I think it was very like informative in terms of like, oh, this is how someone would stop a cavalry charge, at least on film. Uh, so when Gandalf and Eomer are charging down that hill at the end of Two Towers, I'm like, well, all these Urukai are going to put up their spears and pikes, and then they're just going to like skewer the White Wizard and his Rohirrim Hell buddies. Yeah. Um, and th- that's when, <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, and then that's when you know the White Wizard, the guy who kind of can play with light. You see the sun like rising above him, and you see it purposefully blinding um, the Urukai, and they start raising their spears or not holding them in defensive positions, and that allows the Rohirrim to run over them. That very specifically to me in the theaters in 2002 is like, oh, they know that most of the audiences have probably seen Braveheart. Like, that's literally what was mm-hmm. going through my mind. Yeah. Is like, we knew what to expect here. And then they added that little flourish at the end uh, with the sun and the light to kind of change things up. So I wasn't like sitting here walking out of the movie theaters like, why didn't they just spear all the horses, man? <laughs> uh, like, like they like gave me a satisfactory explanation to everything that was happening. Not that it had to be explained, but it was one of those things where coming out after Braveheart, if they didn't do that little extra thing, I would honestly be questioning it a little bit. Um, but you know, because it was, and I really do think Braveheart was a big reason we saw the resurgence of battle movies. Yeah. So for all its other problems, it's definitely, you know, worth it for that. And it's got some fun cast members as well, besides Mel Gibson. Yeah. Well, it's actually funny because uh, watching it recently, right before, I, uh, it's, it, so it's kind of a, a played out joke to be annoyed by the fact that, like, the Battle of Sterling Bridge um, in the movie uh, does not feature Bridge, which was a very key component of the battle of sterling bridge um so you know kind of boring i don't really care uh it's it's kind of irrelevant but but they've got a guy that it's either at the battle of sterling bridge or the 
I didn't realize it was Falkirk. I thought it was meant to be the Battle of Preston Pants. Anyways, uh, before one of the battles, there's a guy who kind of mouths off to to uh, old Willy Wallace uh, being like, uh, what the fuck? Why are we fighting? We're all going to die. Uh, and William Wallace kind of goes back and forth with him on it. And that guy's Peter Mullen. Um, and when I was watching it... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was looking at it, I was going, damn, is that Peter Mullen? No, there's no way that's Peter Mullen. No, they definitely found a different Scottish guy for that than this. And then, no, it is, it is. Uh, we have four people in this country, uh, and they were all in Braveheart. Um, but but one of the things that I do find kind of interesting about uh, the both of the battles in there... Um, Beyond the fact that neither of them have music underplaying them, which which is, I think, kind of interesting because, like, that's a thing that Peter Jackson learned um, is to and I, I think he possibly kind of took that a bit from the kind of Star Wars uh, school of, mm-hmm. of filmmaking, which is just play your shit like it's a musical. Uh, just have music doing everything all the time until you really need it to not and then people will feel it. But uh, always have your music kind of doing a lot of the emotional heavy lifting for you. That's a great part of all of his battle scenes. Braveheart, dead quiet. But beyond that. Um, it is kind of funny to be, and, and not in the like, oh, it's historically inaccurate, but like the Battle of Sterling Bridge was fought over like a 10 foot wide like bridge uh, and fording a river that was cold, uh, not easily navigable. Uh, and and there are a lot of kind of legendary, um, there are a lot of legends about how it was that the battle was won, how it was that the bridge collapsed. And I think if they thought a little bit more, not for the sake of historical accuracy, but for the sake of dramatic tension about what having a little wooden bridge that you're both fighting for control over would do to the narrative tension, um, then I think they could have had a really interesting, like sort of environmental, environmentally sort of um, improved battle. Um the battle, because I think it's the other thing, is like um, all of the battles in Braveheart look to me like they're just done on golf courses, which is like, sure, fine, whatever. Scotland has golf courses, but also like, what well, Scotland <laughs> has more than golf course, courses a lot is a lot of fucked up terrain. Um, and it's not easy walking around here. There's not a lot of flat spaces. Um, and this is true for a lot of the, the battles in the Wars of Independence. So they were going, you know, 20 miles out of their way to find a flat bit of land to have their pitch battles and when they couldn't do that like at the battle of sterling bridge they were fighting on really treacherous really uncomfortable ground and so it wasn't your kind of standard medieval battle in a lot of ways it was made worse by the fact that scotland is a really fucked up country um geographically and otherwise geologically and otherwise um and so that's one of the things that i would have been really interested in in, in kind of seeing in braveheart but that peter jackson takes and and does very you know very well because there is the caldera of of the hornberg and there's the you know the 45 degree angle hill and the sun and the you know the the siege and the fact that they all the orcs have to kind of push themselves in and then there's the you know the fangorn forest yada 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 so that's all really well done um but I but I think it's also interesting because one of the battles that I think we'll inevitably talk about is is um, Sam Raimi's Ar- Army of Darkness. Um, and, and that is, you know, Peter Jackson shot for shot recreated that for Helm's Deep. Like, it is exactly Helm's Deep, except that it doesn't have that environmental component and it doesn't have that closure in, in the mountainside. It doesn't have the sense of being totally trapped and fucked on three sides. And it doesn't have that really kind of good and, 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 and unnerving um, uh, environmental storytelling component to it. And, and that is, I think, really interesting because if you think, if you think of, um, perhaps historically, like unhelpfully, but if you think of the Battle of Helm's Deep as sort of like the best movie battles will ever be, then it is interesting to go back and see all of these battles that Peter Jackson is picking from and, and improving on to get to that point. And just to see where all of these little bits and pieces, you know, the little bits from Army of Darkness, the little bits from Braveheart, the little bits from Star Wars, where he kind of melds these things together to just get this like fucking epic battle. 
Yeah. What, uh, do you want to say more about the Army of Darkness? Because I know that's the other one you have circled here, so might as well get into do it. Do I ever? Um, so Army of Darkness, for those who don't know, uh, is a is I guess ostensibly is the third movie in the mm-hmm. unofficial Evil Dead trilogy. The first two Evil Deads, Evil Dead and then Evil Dead Two, were uh, produced by Sam Raimi, um, and they were independent movies. And then fuck, I immediately forgot the studio. I think it was like Warner Brothers or something uh, picked up. Uh, the the script opted option the script for a third um a, a third Evil Dead movie and uh and basically gave them a massive budget and so Sam Raimi filmed uh Evil Dead which is basically Bruce Campbell fight zombies uh but then did it in uh in a different time and went back to the medieval ages allegedly uh, where there are zombies and and Bruce Campbell has to uh, unite. Uh, a whole bunch of uh, warring kingdoms to overcome this threat of the dead um, and the army of the dead, the army of darkness. Um, and it is it is not a serious movie. It is a serious movie and it's not a serious movie. I think in that kind of great style that Sam Raimi has where he can he can walk that line very, mm-hmm. very well. Uh, something that I think Peter Jackson also occasionally has, does quite well. Um, but it is this massive, um, high budget, big budget, corny fantasy movie with this incredibly massive um battle sequence that that really caps off the the kind of solidly the ass half of 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 the movie um and where you know they went over budget and i think sam raimi and a couple of other producers each pitched in like a million dollars to get the movie over the line but you can tell that every single cent of the hundreds of millions of dollars that they had for this movie was spent on on paying extras to have these really big voluminous battle sequences and and so every single i'm not kidding when i'm saying this and i'm not saying this to denigrate Peter Jackson. I'm not saying this to denigrate Holmes Deep. Every single shot that is in the battle in Army of Darkness is recreated in some form or a fashion in uh, in Helm's Deep. Uh, you know, there's a scene where someone almost takes a candle and puts it too close to um, a black powder keg, uh, which is exactly what happens with Grima and Isengard, mm-hmm. um, using the super, like the great blue light with that single key light, that single white key light um, as your way of lighting everything so nobody's confused about what the fuck's going on because it's nighttime that is great obviously that's a more standard theater practice but i think it is very clearly uh done uh, in in helm's deep as sort of a, a lesson learned from army of darkness you know there's the ladders all of those shots are done the same there's someone um not quite shield surfing but jumping down a whole bunch of stairs in a way that looks really similar to legolas there's um characters swinging from ropes and being dragged up the side of the wall just like aragorn and gimli there's people running up a causeway in all the same ways every single shot that you see in army of darkness is recreated in Helm's Deep. And both of them are better for it. Um, Army of Darkness, because watching it ex post facto is really fun because you're doing the like pointing Leo meme. Um, and mm-hmm. Helm's Deep because Sam Raimi's a really smart filmmaker. Um, and Sam, Sam Raimi is a really, really smart and really, really skilled filmmaker who knows how to do camp and 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 corniness um and combine it with something very very serious in a way that's very impactful and and peter jackson took those lessons and applied them in a different uh, situation to obviously incredible effect um and and i i really do think that like um everybody should sit down and, and watch this movie because it is absolutely one of the most fun movies i've ever ever seen mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, with uh, Helm's Deep specifically, I think like basically every wide shot we have of the battle is basically straight from Army of Darkness. Like those shots specifically stand out, like you said, with the ladders going up and everything. Um, We have been going a bit long and I have like about a dozen other great battles listed here. 
Um, I do want to throw in that I do think um, Game of Thrones generally did its battles well. Um, I know there are a couple that are very controversial, but um, I think the first couple ones they did, Blackwater and Watchers on the Wall, which are the episodes that are fully battle scenes, one in the Capitol and the other up at the Wall, uh, are both very solid episodes. Um, I do want to shout out really quickly the book, though. Um, for those who don't know, A Song of Ice and Fire is written in point of view chapters. So one chapter is from Sansa's point of view, then the next is from Jon Snow. Um, how George actually does the Blackwater battle in the book is really great. Um, it's just a string of Davos, Sansa, and Tyrion chapters, the three point of views who are present. So we're all taking in the battle like over the course of six or seven chapters, but um, through different sets of eyes who are only privy to where they are. Um, Sansa being a young lady of the court is just like in the castle, like with the other ladies, whereas uh, Tyrion is on the front lines for the Lannister cause. Davos is sailing in with the uh, Stannis's fleet. Um, so you're seeing like little bits of the battle and it's not really until after the book you can really sit down and think about and piece together exactly what happened um, because you're given like incomplete um, or imperfect information based on what's happening in those point of view chapters. Um, so the show did it really well. I think it's one of the show's best episodes, but I really am impressed with what George did writing a big battle for a book. Um, and I really look forward to The Winds of Winter, which I'm sure will be coming out next week um, because there are two big battles that are just waiting to happen following the end of A Dance with Dragons, the last published book. Um, and I imagine he's going to do something similar where he's going to spend a couple point of views focused on each battle and seeing it through their eyes. Oh, okay. Uh, do you got anything else you want to say about battles here? Um, one quick thing. I, I, we'll get into it definitely at a later point. We just have to. We're morally obligated to. But almost nobody was as good at filming uh, battle sequences as, as Akira Kurosawa. Uh, and, and Seven Samurai in particular. The battle in Seven Samurai is like the fucking peak of cinema. But loads of them are just really incredible. One that I think is really underrated is uh, the kind of gang warfare scenes in, in Yojimbo. Uh, just for showing the kind of equal parts absurdity and kind of horror of of violence and warfare but like if you are someone who enjoys war movies if you are someone who enjoys movies at all like you gotta sit down and watch your kurosawa's because you will never see anything quite like them oh absolutely um on top of seven samurai i'll also mention throne of blood and ran um, as other big Kurosawa productions that have huge battles in them um, that are a lot of fun. But I do think Seven Samurai applies a lot to Helm's Deep itself. Like after uh, Raimi and Braveheart, it might be like the third most obvious influence on this battle we're going to talk about now. Um, but uh, I had a bunch of other things uh, listed here. Um, Gladiator has a huge battle to open it. Um, technically Independence Day, the final battle <laughs> oh God, after yeah. the president gives his big speech is really cool. Um, Dunkirk was a Christopher Nolan movie from like six or seven years ago. Um, not my favorite Nolan, not my favorite war movie, but it, he approached it in a different way, the way Christopher Nolan would. Um, and if you're a Harry Styles fan, I guess he's there too. <laughs> um, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, Sergio Leone's great uh, spaghetti western that has a good little Civil War scene that's kind of tangential to the plot. Um, the Wild Bunch is famous for having one of the bloodiest shootouts near the end of it. I mentioned Paths of Glory, where Kubrick does this great tracking shot across like the trenches in a World War I battle. Um, I think it's set in France, or at least, you know, between Germany and France. Um, it's staggering shot, um, and it's probably like one of the most haunting uh, movies I've ever seen. I think Paths of Glory is kind of an underrated Stanley Kubrick film. 
Um, and there's, of course, Apocalypse Now, which I know Emily is a huge <laughs> fan of, um, and she talked about in uh, relation to uh, the Rogue One scene that borrows a lot from it. Last we saw of Helm's Deep, a non-orc horn interrupted Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn getting dressed. But the horn, which is very definitely not orcs, calls them to the main gate, where Haldir marches in with a battalion of elvish soldiers to assist the men of Rohan. Yeah, yeah, I know people hate this, but it makes sense for the movies, I swear. We'll get there. How is this possible? I bring word from Elrond of Rivendell. An alliance once existed between elves and men. Long ago we fought and died together. We come to honor that allegiance. I think it's all the little details around Haldir's arrival that makes it work for me. Legolas's huge goofy smile at his kin showing up, and then standing behind Haldir when he says, we will be honored to fight alongside men once more. And Aragorn is just over the moon. The unwitting hug he gives Haldir and Haldir's look of, uh, okay, I guess we hug now, <laughs> legitimately makes me smile. They hug now? But the many happy meetings don't last long. The swarm of Urukai arrive on Haldir's heels, an endless mass of black, speckled by torchlight descending into the deeping coom. Mist hangs heavy on the keep and valley, a deep blue pallor to everything on screen. Gimli doesn't have a great view, Stuck behind the parapets as the camera trucks along the curtain wall, manned by elves, old men, and young boys. Your friends are with you, Aragorn. Let's hope they last the night. As the camera squares up Theoden, some light rain falls on his head. And then, the sky opens up, and a deluge begins as a somber piece of Howard Shore's score finally kills the silence. The Uruks halt their march when their infiltrate when their infantry leader crescendos a spire of rock and lets out a guttural yell. In the rain, the Uruks are a black void of spears and armor and flesh, branded with the white hand of Saruman. Their heavy breaths are visible on the air, as is every last raindrop dripping down their armor, and there's nothing but horrendous yellows shining through their eyeslits. The movie really lets you wallow in it. The sheer monstrosity of the army... And then cutting back to the children in caves, clinging to their mothers, barely comprehending what is happening above. The archers on the wall knock their arrows and hold, with Legolas highlighting the weak points in the Uruk battle dress. An old man with shaky arms accidentally lets his arrow fly, taking out a frontline Uruk. The Uruk start yelling and howling, and you know it's serious because we get a few Dutch angles here. And with that stray arrow, the Uruks press the attack, and so starts the Battle of Helm's Deep. So it begins. Saruman's army charges the walls as elves and men rain arrows down on them from both the Deeping Wall and the Hornburg. 
There are even visible cliffs in the deeping gorge where archers are placed, adding a sense of scale and verticality to the proceedings. The battle is also good at showing us some random guys, just random faces memorable for the half a second of screen time they get. For example, the one-eyed guy calling for a volley of arrows, which we can follow from the bows inside the keep to the Uruk flesh it lands outside the walls. The Uruks do make the wall and then start hoisting up siege ladders. Gimli says, good, but the Isengard theme playing lets us know things are tipping towards the Uruk side. The men on the walls draw swords, and all-out mayhem begins. There's not much to narrate here, but I, ca I cannot emphasize this next part enough. Every shot is clearly visible, properly lit, there's no shaky cam or super quick cuts, and the participants look like they are physically exerting themselves, taking bumps and sweating and bleeding as the onslaught continues. It's the platonic ideal of action cinema, to me. Gimli and Legless do, a, do add a bit of color, though. The dwarf slides between an Uruk's legs to axe it right in the balls, which is just a gnarly thing to purposefully include. We also get the first mention of the game between the dwarf and elf friends. Legolas! I'm on 17! Ah! I don't know yet, I'm scoring me! Ah! Does Gimli calling Legolas a pointy ear count as a slur? <laughs> <laughs> we end this opening salvo with Aragorn knocking over a few ladders, and then we cut over to the Entmoot, which we discussed in our previous episode. Back with the battle, Gimli found a cheat to boost his kill count. He's standing on the parapets, spamming axe attacks on the climbing Uruks before they can set foot on the walls. With the arrows raining down and Aragorn and his men holding the line, things are looking mildly okay for the good guys. But right then, the Uruks have finished packing the culvert drain with Saruman's eisen bombs, and a lone <laughs> torch runner cuts his way through the battalion of Uruks. Aragorn sees it and orders his favorite sniper, Legolas, to take him out. Legolas may be good, but he's no solid snake, so despite putting two arrows in the torchbearer, he stumbles and dives into the drain, much like me throwing myself through my front door when I've had one too many whiskey neats with the boys. <laughs> And the bombs go off, blowing a huge fucking hole in the wall, set to some of the best foley work of exploding rock and metal you'll ever hear. Smoke and debris and stone fly everywhere, leveling unlucky Uruks in the way, but that's just a small price to pay for the invading forces. Water and Urukai flood in through the gap, and Theoden's assessment of things has quickly taken a turn. While the Uruks breached the deeping wall, another force had worked its way up the causeway, beating on the main gate with a battering ram. Theoden yells, Brace the gate! as the Uruks come knocking at the front door. Aragorn was knocked out by the blast, and his prone body lay on the ground as the Uruks close in on him. Lacking any artillery of their own, Gimli becomes a cannonball himself, diving onto the charging masses and scrapping with them until Aragorn can find his feet. The future king of men orders a volley once Gimli is clear, and then Aragorn leads the charge. And this is where we're going to leave you for today. Legolas doing some more sicko shit. Noticing his friends down in the muck, the elf slides an Uruk shield down the steps, then hops on, shooting several orcs on his way down, and then launching the fucking shield into another enemy's chest, then pulling an arrow out of his quiver, stabbing another enemy with the arrow in its face, then knocking and shooting another enemy with that same arrow, all in about four seconds. And people hate this shit? Could not be me. <laughs> anyway, with the wall breached, 
Theoden orders Aragorn and company to abandon the outer defenses, which is where we'll pick up the battle next time we return to Helm's Deep. Before we get into the battle stuff, we should talk about the Haldir elf arrival ahead of the Urukai. <laughs> a commonly criticized adaptation choice. There are no elves at Helm's Deep. Why was it Haldir specifically, etc. and so forth? I don't really have any stirring or steadfast defense of it, other than it kind of plays on its own merits. This is payoff for Galadriel and Elrond's FaceTime chat earlier about the elves leaving Middle Earth to its fate. And it's kind of coherent with what's going on with Treebeard and the Ents in their branch of the story. So for me, it's just kind of a thing I, I accepted so long ago, but I don't really have strong feelings about it other than I am required to defend it as the Two Towers defender that I've cultivated for my own personality. <laughs> um, yeah, I, see, this is the thing. I know people get mad about this, uh, but uh, like, I don't... like. There's not a nice way of saying, I don't care. Like, I just don't care enough to be mad about this. Like, of all of the things that I find, all of the adaptation choices I find, like, genuinely frustrating in these films, this would not even rank for me. Um, Because, like, like, there are things that are funny, right? Like, there are things that are really funny. Like, Haldir, we originally see him as, like, working for uh, Gladriel. He's a March Warden of Lothlorien. And then when he shows up, he's, like, he's basically, like, Elrond sends his regards. And so it's a bit, like... <laughs> what what the fuck are you just like a free agent like are you doing agency work like what's the deal here and that i think if you if you really forced me to like dig into it and give a contrarian opinion on that like that i think i could possibly argue is a bit of the like latent misogyny of the late 90s showing because like galadriel is definitely more powerful than elrond this dude literally worked for galadriel like we know that he worked for galadriel but then he's citing elrond aragorn and even that i think you can possibly argue away is like obviously aragorn and elrond have more relationship than uh Gladriel and aragorn but like it's just such like a whatever kind of thing to me um they this these movies were never going to show the other battles that happened in the ring war that was just never going to happen we were never going to get the elves in lothlorien pushing back like all, all the forces of darkness we were never going to get anything from like the markwood campaign we were never going to get anything from the dale campaign like that is just so far beyond the scope of what these movies were and adding the elves in here to show that they're not just like immediately fucking off and or sitting around with the thumbs up their assholes like is is basically fine like a little cornerly handled but basically fine to me and like can't imagine getting pent up about it yeah i think at least for me like being divorced from the books and watching it it would be weird to have all the Elrond and Galadriel stuff we do have in these movies and then the elves just not to be there except for Legolas yeah. at some point. It, I'm not saying here, but I figured they would have some kind of relevance. This is a fantasy story with elves in it, so I expect elves to do something. Um, so I think a couple of the rationalizations I have since made in the last 20 years, one is they just didn't create any other elf characters in Rivendell. Like if they had set up like a Glorfindel character and he was there for the council, I imagine it would be him yeah. that's showing up here. 
um, because originally um, they did think of making Haldir's role played by Arwen, which we'll talk about in a second. So I think if they did have someone else in the Rivendell group to use, they would have used him. Yeah. Because um, it's not like we're here clamoring for Haldir's appearance. He's not a huge glup shido in the minds of 2002 Lord of the Rings movie going fans. <laughs> um, and I think there, I think something that I've kind of come up with in the last couple of years, kind of revisiting the books and working with you, is that at least relative to the Lothlorien elves, Haldir was one who spoke the common tongue and had some relations outside of Lothlorien. So of the people to possibly send, he's someone who might be able to get along because there's a chance you know, that they might not know Aragorn is there or Legolas is there. So they need someone who can actually speak to fucking Theoden um, in like a language that they speak. Um, So like, those are kind of things like, okay, I can like use these to defend it. Again, it's not anything I really care about. um, But those are kind of the ways I would rationalize it if someone said this was the worst adaptation choice that they'd ever seen, which, come on, man, there's better, there's worse ones in this movie itself. (laughs) Uh, But I... I think those are just kind of what uh, how I kind of think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I guess we're going to get into this anyways. But the kicking kicking down the Arwen door here is is fascinating to me. Um, One of the things, again, like I'm not really committed to this position, but now that I've articulated, I feel I owe it to my contrarian personality to, to kind of run with it. But like, I think there is something really interesting in in who gets to do battle in Helm's Deep. Like, Helm's Deep is the peak battle of the movie, the movies. It's obviously the one that they cared the most about in terms of creating, shooting, acting, writing, scoring, developing, everything. This is the battle that gets all the attention. We'll get in Pelennor Fields uh, later. <laughs> um, but I think that's, like, the really kind of half-assed battle of, of these movies. And I think it is no surprise, then, that it is also the battle in which um, Eowyn is fighting, in which there's a woman fighting. Um, Eowyn was originally going to fight in this, and there's great, just great behind-the-scenes footage of uh, Miranda Otto running through the glittering caves with a sword in hand, yelling, motherfucker, um, that I wish <laughs> had made it into the final cut. Um, but the fact that, like, originally they had two women fighting in this battle, and the final cut has zero women fighting, even though they've kind of positioned women's ability to fight as like a moral good in this story rankles me a bit. Like I find it interesting. I don't, again, I don't really care about it because I think the decision to have either of them fighting, to have Eowyn there at home, stupid, all stupid, to have Arwen there, stupid, but like that would be like a a reasonable knock-on effect to if they're going to be there, they may as well fight. Like not one of the things that makes me mad, but I do think it is interesting that they were originally intentioned to be fighting and then they ended up both sitting it out. That that's always kind of an interesting thing to me. Yeah. The funny thing is uh, when we talked in episode nine about flight of flight to the Fords and the implications of putting a sword in Arwen's hand. um, I'm pretty sure I was down on the idea of including Arwen here but somehow I think I've kind of like come back around to the other <laughs> position somewhere between then and now. And this isn't just to spite you, Emily, I swear. Uh, but I think at the point that you already put a sword in her hand in the first movie, like I wouldn't really f- bat an eye at them doing it again here. Um, again, I think her coming from Rivendell makes a little more sense than from, you know, Haldir from Lothlorien. Um, and also just Liv Tyler is a pretty good actor and I like to see her face on screen. So if she was just there kicking ass, you know, I think I'd be fine with it. Um, I don't think I would think of it as any better or worse than having Haldir there. Um, and I hate to be like, oh, she's not like other girls. But if she is like sitting there on the walls fighting, you could maybe see why Aragorn is so in love with her. Yeah. Um 
because you just you just it's kind of a given in these movies that he's in love with Arwen and that's why he won't be with Eowyn. Um, and I'm not trying to have Arwen and Eowyn fight for like Aragorn's heart here. That's not what I want Helm's <laughs> Deep to be. But I feel like you could see a little bit more of what Arwen is. I think it would fit in with whatever they've done with her movie character in that first one, um, which is fair because she doesn't really have much of a character, <laughs> at least in the Lord of the Rings book. Um, so like at this point, at, while I used to be kind of against the idea of Arwen being here, if she did show up to lead these elves at this point, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. That doesn't really make a difference for me at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's basically where I'm at. Like, I think, um, I, I guess this is the kind of thing, Helm's Deep for me is the point where like, there are things that book fans get mad of, about that were changed here that I'm like, you're too late to be mad about this. Like this is all of these things that you are twigging here are just logical knock-on effects from other adaptation changes that like book fans are not as vocally angry about. And like, this is just, this is just that, like if we have accepted that Arwen is like fucking around in the woods with like a sword, um, then like it would, it is totally reasonable that she would be here. That is a totally logical and reasonable knockout effect to that adaptational choice. If Eowyn must be at Helm's Deep, then it is totally logical and reasonable that she would also be fighting because she's proved that she can fight. Um, like just a strange thing to be mad about again, like the elves, like if the elves are going to be as active and like as, doing as much interaction with the men and if there are not really any other open fronts in this war like we see in the movies then like totally logical for them to show up here this is just not the thing to like not like not the place like if you were going to be mad about these things you needed to be mad about the things that led to them ages ago now you're just like putting band-aids over bullet holes and at that point just fucking wear the bullet hole with pride i guess I was thinking about your point about how, you know, they put their whole, like, Pradashusi into this battle and not the one in uh, Return of the King. Um, part of me wonders is because I think they would consciously know making these films that Helm's Deep is where, like, Peter Jackson is putting his stamp on Lord of the Rings. This is, like, the moment that he took to blow up and do his own thing, kind of with. Um, whereas the Battle of Pelennor Fields more or less kind of tracks with how the text is and, you know, this one is definitely Jackson's like, I really like this part and I'm going to make a whole big deal out of it, even though it's 13 pages out of the entire um, trilogy or whatever. It's going to be an entire third act. So I wonder if it's because this is kind of his personal stamp on the story that this one got a little more care and was such a felt like a much bigger part of the production than the battle at Pelennor Field. Yeah, I, I think also, um, you know, it's something that we talked about in previous ones where like Fellowship of the Ring to me feels like the adaptation where they are like most confident in their choices. Um, and it's I'm not just saying that because like they hew so closely to the book because a lot of places they don't hew closely to the book. But when they make those changes, they seem a lot more confident about the changes that they've made. The two towers, I feel like they are still fairly confident in a lot of their choices, Helm's Deep being, being kind of chief among them. But, you know, there are a lot of other places and a lot of other choices they make where they're kind of a bit middling on whether or not they're, like, willing to kind of back up and argue for their choices. Return of the King is where just, like, the wheels come off. Uh, and I think by the time, like, you get to Return of the King, uh, like, or to the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, like, like uh, they're not even bothering to justify the shit anymore. They're kind of just sprinting to the end. And it's not to say these are bad movies. Like, Return of the King is still a banging movie, but, like, it is, I don't think they have as much emotional investment in the outcome of it um, in in the way that they do either around Helm's Deep or around all of Fellowship of the Ring. And so it's just not like, it, there's just not that oomph and, and kind of pizzazz there, and which is also why I think it's a 
fucking crime that it was Return of the King that got all of the Oscars and not the Two Towers or Same. Fellowship. Like, that is just a fucking joke. Uh, and the Academy is full of dipshits. Uh, but, um, and maybe actually this will be coming out around uh, Oscar time as well uh, and Emmy time. Yeah, and I if, think it will be. Yes, and Emmy time. And I'm saying this now, if the Emmys don't give uh, Andor a whole bunch of stuff, then these people are fucking idiots. Anyways, um, I, I, you know, they kind of run out of steam at this point and, and, uh, and the po- point of the Pelinor Fields. And I think also they... Helm's Deep has a bit more hooks for Peter Jackson and what he likes. I think like the mm-hmm. Pelennor Fields mm-hmm. is like it's an open air, classically kind of structured medieval battle. It's daytime. There's like, you know, there's the Army of the Dead, but they only kind of show up at the end of it. The the kind of enemy has fully been established by this point. We know what the orcs are capable of. Helm's Deep is a bit more horror movie like. Uh, not just because it's obviously in this one, you know, pulling from Army of Darkness to to kind of set itself up, but like the elements of a horror movie are far more present in Helm's Deep in the text than they are in the Pelennor Fields. And so that's obviously a bit more of a pull for horror movie director Peter Jackson. So I want to kick off by discussing how the Battle of Helm's Deep sounds, because the sound design and editing and Foley work are all immaculate. IMDb lists 59 people that worked on the Two Towers sound team, ranging from supervising editors to boom operators, Foley operators, ADR supervisors, and a bunch of other titles. Michael Hopkins and Ethan Van Der Ryan took home the Academy Award for Best Sound Editing for the Two Towers, which I assume this battle, along with Treebeard and Gollum, made the case for him. So, starting at square zero, literally, the absence of sound. After the elves arrive and it's just several shots of the walls of Helm's Deep manned with elves and men. This is one of the notable no-score stretches of this trilogy, where nothing can be heard except the distant yet growing louder crunching of the Urukai boots. We hear it close up, we hear it from the walls, we hear it deep within the glittering caves, muffled, but ever, ever louder. And then that percussive rhythm is accented by thunder, a great big flash across Theoden's face as he looks up. One raindrop, then more, then an avalanche of it. Each raindrop heard resounding off stone, off armor, off earth. Out to in the coom, we hear it on the Urukai armor, their crunching boots softened just a tiny bit by the wet ground. Yeah, so th- this rocks because we don't get a whole bunch of like, I'm going to call it inclement weather, but really what I mean is precipitation. We don't get a lot of precipitation in this uh, these movies. Um, I think the kind of notable ones I can think of besides this is literally just Karadras and the snow on Karadras. Um, and that's really interesting to me because it's not to say that it's all sunny blue skies for, you know, the rest of the film. Um, but but. It's dry. It's really dry, uh, which is funny in a book, you know, by a British guy. I, we don't get as much rain as the stereotype says, but we do get a lot, like enough that it's a nuisance. And so these are very sunny blue sky films in comparison to like the reality of British weather. Um, but but there is something kind of almost supernatural um, when you get precipitation, right? Because like the Snow and Ras, whether it's like actually the mountain itself doing it or whether it's Saruman, well, I guess the movie takes position that it's Saruman doing it. And there's something magical and magically fucked up about the snow. And then again, when we get the rain here, it's not like it's the like direct influence of, um, you know, wizards 
gods, demigods, anything of things of that nature. Um, but there is like it is really kind of taking that sympathetic weather dial and and really turning it up to eleven because like as you say, when there is no score in the Lord of the Rings, you really need to be paying attention to why there is no score. And in that same vein, when the weather is anything but kind of latently neutral, you really need to be paying, be paying attention to what's going on. And the combination of both of those things here, the the silence of the score, the, the have the has the score stop screaming, Clarice, uh, and and also the the presence of the rain, and um, is is two kind of key hallmarks for these movies that shit is about to go down yeah and i was just thinking the only other moment that i really can think of rain is when they're at brie and they're being hunted by the nazgul so i think tonally and emotionally it's very much the same idea there the rain also heralds the return of howard shore's music a melancholy movement that will eventually give way to the isengard theme when the uruks begin their assault properly there is a spattering of other light motifs in the battle music throughout, including the Lothlorien elven theme played for Haldir and when Aragorn leads a charge of elves, and of course, the fast-paced fellowship melody when Link goes shield surfing. The Rohan strings are held in reserve, though. We don't get that until the hour Aragorn and Theoden draw swords together. We could sit here all day and call out all the individual foley work and not get to the half of it. The Uruk's grunting, heavy breathing, guttural yells, and war cries are all magnificent and horrifying. The twanging of bowstrings, the whooshing of arrows, the satisfying meaty effect when it sticks in an Uruk. The singing of steel as Aragorn wields his sword, the rippling metal when Gimli's axe cuts into orc armor. On and on, we could go. Getting a bit deeper into the production, though... The major outdoor shooting was done over 120 nights in generally cold and wet conditions, as was desired. They did need to use artificial rain a couple times, which means dumping gallons of water on the cast, but most of what made it to film is natural rain. Those 120 days created 20 hours of footage, of which 10 minutes made the final (laughs) film, and the Battle of Helm's Deep, including all the indoor and VFX shots, spans 39 minutes over the film's final act. Yeah, and and, and this is is fun because um, filming rain is is kind of a notoriously difficult thing to do, and and singing in the rain, I think it's milk that they added to the water that they were dropping, so it would show up on film, so that the raindrops would show up on film, so like, um, uh, you know, you, you there is a certain stench uh, that you don't need to think of when you're looking at that rain. But I think now, uh, from here on out, when you see Gene Kelly singing and dancing in the rain, uh, you should imagine the faint scent of spoiled milk. Although he was also sick and did that all in one take, so maybe it wasn't spoiling yet. Anyways, so milk for singing in the rain. And then in uh, Rashomon, um, the, which features sympathetic weather and a whole shit ton of rain, uh, they had to add ink to the rain to get it to show up on screen. And I think we're starting to see an... In fellowship, not in fellowship, sorry, in Lord of the Rings and Two Towers, we're starting to see the sort of improvements on um, graphical technology and on lighting uh, and on filming techniques in that they're not having to dump a shit ton of milk uh, on all of these hundreds of people for 20 odd hours in a row because we're really starting to see these advances in technology that allow these things to be um, captured in greater clarity on on screen. And, and so as we think about the Lord of the Rings as this really sort of not just a peak of filmmaking, but also the culmination of uh, you know a hundred odd years of filmmaking techniques it's fun to see the the ways in which things were slightly easier for them than in other ways and the, the ways in which they have been able to adapt and benefit to years and years and years of uh like technological change and adaptation 
Yeah, I'm also glad you mentioned Rashomon there, um, because I think the arrows through the rain also specifically remind me of Seven Samurai, um, because it does start raining during a part yeah. of the final battle. And when the people draw and shoot their arrows, you can see the raindrops moving out of the arrow's way. So um, Kurosawa eventually figured it out 60 years before like the American <laughs> filmmakers did. But I think a lot of what Helm's Deep is borrows a lot from those rainy arrow flights from Seven Samurai. The night shooting, in addition to using natural lighting from the moon and torches, also used blue backlighting for everything, which gives this entire part of the film a bluish tint while preserving all the detail and full visibility. There's a famous quote about this from an interview with Sean Astin, who plays Sam, and Andrew Lesney, the film's director of photography. Basically, Sean asked where all the light comes from at night, and Andrew answered, the same place as the music. <laughs> These shoots ended up using 20,000 extras in total to create the battle, most of them to fill out the crowds, plus the specific stunt people to engage in the skirmishes uh, captured on film. Viggo Mortensen was apparently a real glue guy on set, keeping morale high and joking around with the extras and learning all the stunt people's names. He also apparently kept track of how often he killed each stunt performer, usually over 50 times given all the takes he would have to shoot. Yeah, the scope and scale of the, the the extras list is is something that's really fascinating to me, and I think I, it means a lot more to me now after having recently seen Army of Darkness for the first time. Um, because I, I kind of joked up top about how Sam Raimi spent every single cent of the budget for Army of Darkness <laughs> on getting extras, and it really feels like it. I mean, all of the scenes feel so full of people and like actual people, not like composited extras. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but you can you can really tell that every single person in that 500 person crowd was actually there on set, and I think that's a and Peter Jackson takes from um, from from Sam Raimi really well. Like you can really feel the, the the numbers in this scene. There's always movement. There's always people going to and fro, like little ants or bees in a hive. Um, but again, this is one of these things where this movie is just the like apotheosis of and culmination of so many you know decades of of film techniques. And so here you've got not just the mass of the physical actors, the extras on the set, but you also have the fact that they are able to do all of these sort of digital enhancements to make these things feel bigger and more massive than they are. And 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 seeing these things work in in a sort of harmonious accord rather than one fully replacing the other is I think the thing that we should have kept, the lesson we should have learned from these these movies mm -hmm. instead of the if you throw enough computers at it, it'll do the job lesson, which is I think actually the one the industry took from these. Speaking of computers, though all those extras were deployed, that wasn't quite enough to create the massive CGI shots of the approaching armies. Among the technologies created for these Lord of the Rings films includes MASSIVE, which is an acronym for Multiple Agent Simulation System in a Virtual Environment, which not only handled the creation of massive CG crowds of people and Uruks, but also used AI to govern their behaviors as driven by visual and audio cues from the story itself. I.e., if Aragorn and Gimli are leaping onto the causeway, the crowds on the ramp need to react and have sightlines showing that they see the two hunters engaging them. It should be no surprise that given all of this, plus all we talked about with bigotures a few weeks ago and the Gollum VFX and the Treebeard VFX from last year, that the two towers swept the first annual awards at the Visual Effects Society, taking home two-thirds of the total awards that evening. So let's talk about the battle itself. I want to break it down both as a narrative and as a military incursion. 
I'll be talking about the battle in full and generic terms, but obviously we are only covering half the battle today, so I'll mention but save a lot of the stuff for the second half. Also, I'm no military expert, even an armchair one, since I am not a 40-year-old moderate white man who only reads about Rome and the Crusades, (laughs) so I'm going to do my best with my limited acumen. The Battle for Helm's Deep, or the Battle of the Hornburg, is essentially a light infantry who have some cavalry defending a key defensive outpost. The besieging force, Saruman's Urukai army, are all infantry, light, medium, but mostly heavy, combined with some artillery, though that artillery is deployed as siege support rather than offense, such as the giant crossbows used to lift the manned siege ladders. Already, Rohan is at a disadvantage. Most of the cavalry is missing, of course. Eomer and his Eored are nowhere to be found. But even what remains of Theoden's forces are not in a position to succeed. The military strength of Rohan specializes in wide area maneuvers, reconnaissance, and skirmishing mostly out in the open field. They have no air force, no artillery, and no heavy troop formations. Basically, they are built for raids and attacks and charges out into the open, not for withstanding a siege. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, um... uh... It's not like a, a direct call out from the movie to the books, but but it is a little bit of interesting context from the books, I think, makes this all the more interesting, which is, which is the fact that um, the Hornburg was not built by the Roharam. Uh, and so this is a fortress that was not purpose built for them. It is something that they have come into laterally and, and made use of in their own way. But it's not something that is is sort of kitted out and, and fitted to their purposes. And I think the fact that the everything about the defensive mechanism of the Hornburg um, works against what their military strengths are and the fact that like not in working against their military strengths it's also working against who they are as a culture because not only are they a war loving people but they're also a a horse loving people not in a horse fucking way but like they love their fucking horses (laughs) Um, like and and the hornberg is not built for that the the hornberg is built more in the sort of um old elvish um style of defensive architecture if you think about a lot of the 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 famous um uh uh, elven cities of legend um you know gondolin chief among them but um um, Nargothrond is another good one, literally under the ground. Um, the the elves were sort of built, were building a defensive and military architecture that was meant to last the ages, but was meant to withstand long, long, long sieges. Um, almost everything, all of the sort of uh, uh, fortresses uh, like Hemring that the the Fenorians build during um, their long stretches, their long watches against uh, Morgoth are, are these massive um, rock uh, chiseled fortresses that are are meant to uh, hold for a very very long time, but are not meant to be necessarily the most offensively excellent um, installations. And and the Rohirrim in in inheriting this from Gondor and the Gondorim who have this far closer connection via Numenor to the elves and and to to the sort of the, especially the the men of old and and their military strategies. They've engineered uh, the Hornburg in one way, and that way is totally orthogonal to the strengths of the Rohirrim as military people who have almost no connection to that ancient history of the elves and in the of the early men. And so, the not only is you know the Rohirrim being pushed back into the Hornburg a huge L and and very very embarrassing for them culturally, but it's also a huge risk because they just can't fight this train. And that is, I think, the thing that makes this all the more interesting and really adds to that sense of despair here. Yeah, I know it's kind of uh, popular to make fun of Edoras as like a military installation or as a city that you would have to defend. 
But if you think about it, it's built towards their strengths. It's built so that they could empty out with their horses really fast. In fact, we see it twice in the films when they leave for Helm's Deep, and then especially when the beacons are lit and we see the entire host leaving the t uh, city. Um, so it it kind of seems like a dubious location, just being on a hill with wooden stakes and wooden watchtowers, but it's really built so that they can see anyone coming on the open plains, and then they're able to mobilize quickly and meet them before there is even an attempt at a siege. Um, so it is really fun comparing the things that Rohan kind of built for itself versus the things that they are using that were built before them. Yeah, yeah. The Urukai were not built for complex maneuvers. They are built to swarm and overwhelm in numbers using wave assaults to keep the pressure of attack on. The initial part of the battle sees them rushing the walls and raising siege ladders over the deeping wall. This helps spread the force of Rohan against the outer defense and allows them to move a battalion in position to start battering the main gate with a breaching asset, aka a battering ram. <laughs> the fire of Isengard is used to create an explosive breach of the walls, from which forces were able to flow in to engage the infantry held in reserve and start flanking internal positions in the Hornburg surrounding the main keep. The Uruks also use the Testudo Formation, Testudo deriving from the Latin for tortoise. This was the practice of using interlocking shields to create a tortoise-like shell for cover for your troops. We see bits of this at the front line of the Urukai, but it's most clearly and effectively seen uh, on the battalion battling its way up the causeway um, that are covering the battering ram before they actually reach the gate. So that's essentially where we'll leave it for now strategy-wise. The enemy tactic was to swarm, spread the thin Rohan forces even thinner, and then specific points of attack at the culvert gap and the main gate so that they could overrun the fortress. When we get to the other half of this battle, we'll dive a bit deeper into the winning strategy by the heroes, though I guess we can only call it a winning strategy because they won, so after the fact. But well-supported positions, well-conceived retreats, and then a final charge with reinforcements will win the day. From a story standpoint, I want to give a shout out to friend of the podcast Tom Holzerman's article about Helm's Deep at his substack, The Mental Health Break. As I mentioned up top, what sets apart the great battles for me and Emily is clear character stakes and work in the battle itself. A bunch of dudes dismembering each other on screen is cool, but battles having their own narrative drive is really what make the great ones sing. What Tom does is apply the framework for scripting a pro wrestling yes. match, the seven stages which create a wrestling match in itself. I'll be using the terms face and heel in this, which re respectively just refer to good guys and bad guys. Our face in this match is the armies of Rohan, led by Theoden, Aragon, and company, and our heels are the fighting Urukai. First, there is the introduction, the two forces coming out to the battle arena and the start of the match. This part of the battle is where the film really establishes mood and tone. We get the silent surveying of the man walls, the shots of despair on the woman and children in the glittering caves, the sympathetic nature of storms and rain, and eventually Howard Shore's sad strings as everyone begins to pray that they make it through the night. Think of it as their entrance music. Next comes The Shine, aka The Face, getting out to an early advantage. While the armies of Saruman are many, the Rohirrim are able to rain arrows down on them and generally hold the walls against those climbing the ladders. You know it's going good because Gimli and Legolas can joke about their counting game together. But after an early lead, the heel generally takes control in what is called the heat, which of course happens right after Theoden asks, is that it? You can't do any fucking better, Saruman? 
The explosion of the wall and the unrelenting beating on the main gate marks the heat for Helm's Deep, where the battle appears to have turned and seems to be where the enemy takes control for good. The next part of a traditional wrestling match is the comeback, that burst of hope that shows the face is not down and out. After the wall is blown, Aragorn is blown back, we get Legolas shield surfing down the steps to take out a bunch of guys, and later Aragorn and Gimli clearing the causeway. The comeback in this battle is accented by Theoden drawing his steel for the first time. The king has entered the ring. But now we're veering into stuff we're going to cover in the second half of the battle, so I'll mostly stop there for now. We'll be mid-comeback the next time we cover Helm's Deep, which will be followed by the big heat, the big comeback, and the finish, which we will talk about in that episode. We will also link to Tom's article because it really is just a great read, and anyone who's ever heard me do podcasts know I love my wrestling analogies. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is uh, Tom, you are a fucking genius. Uh, it's just so good. Um, I, I do not watch wrestling. Uh, I have not since like uh, the early 2000s, literally when Ed and Jeff Hardy were still around, and one of them is definitely dead now, so I think that kind of dates my uh, interest in it um, quite a bit. But, but if there's one thing wrestling knows how to do, it is how to put on a good show. Um, and I know there's kind of two parts of this, like non-culture war, culture war, where it's like half of the people being like, WWE is the best art has ever been and the other half being like it's lump and pro bullshit and and I think there is like a sorry to do Tony Blair third wayism but I think there's like a healthy kind of intermediate <laughs> there which is that like wrestling has entertainment down to a fucking science and they've got it down to like a fucking algorithm in the same way that like Hallmark has like you know romance movies down to like a, a perfect formula uh, WWE has that as well for like quick easy and entertainment that is um as either low or high energy investment requiring as you would like um and that is always kind of guaranteed to give you a good time no matter what the actual sort of like um parameters are of the match or who's actually involved in it like that that's really good it, it's one of the things that's really impressive and so i think it is like um, just a stroke of genius to, to compare Helm's Deep to that because because those beats and those elements that make wrestling so good are exactly, exactly what makes Helm's Deep so brilliant. And, and I think this is also, you know, whether or not, you know, Peter Jackson was, uh, you know, drawing from WWE or not in, in scripting this, which I don't think he was, but I would be very excited if someone could prove me wrong on that. That would be a hell of a thing. Uh, I would love that. So if you can, please do. Um, but but this is such a fascinating and important lens. And I think this is this is the kind of thing that um, a lot of uh, these kinds of, you know, whether it's Lord of the Rings or whether it's Star Wars or whatever any of the other kind of popular trilogies are right, uh, that are out right now, I think there's this kind of like demarcation and delineation that says you can only use the, like the specific frameworks that have been set out by those artists to talk about their art. And I think using this instead um, is such a fucking great way. I'm just so, my mind is just so blown by it. I just think it's such a great way of talking about it. And, and it's something that I want to hear so much more of. Um, but I also think it's really interesting because if there's one thing WWE does um, and just as well as, as Helm's Deep does, it taps into something uh something's maybe slightly politically questionable but nevertheless absolutely fascinating about how we have structured our society and and the things that we um value and find entertaining and there's like nothing about war or violence that is inherently entertaining um there is nothing inevitable about human beings finding that entertaining but the way that we have structured our societies the way that we have structured uh 10,000 years of our history means that it is and and that both of these things have been able to tap into it as well as they have without sort of 
running from that uncomfortable reality of it um, is is really good and really fascinating. And I think the politics of WWE are possibly massively worse uh, in terms of what, how much they embrace that uh, quote-unquote uncomfiness. Um, but but the fact that Helm's Deep is able to do it in such a way means that it is not just successful, but that it is also kind of um, universally understandable because while there are nuances around how violence is enacted and how we find warfare entertaining, there is almost no culture on the face of the planet that does not find this shit entertaining in one way or another. And so we're kind of stripping it back to the bare essentials uh, and uh, shampoo, isn't it? But whatever. Uh, stripping it back to the bare essentials and going from there is just so fucking brilliant. Uh, and it's something they both do well. And Tom, uh, a kiss to your brain for that. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, it really is a wonderful framework for looking at stuff. Um, I was talking about this with the other M in my life. That is Emmett Booth, my <laughs> co-host at Nauticast ASOIF. And we talk about like kind of the human desire to put narrative onto everything. Um, and then I brought up his like, this is basically what we do with sports. Like you put on SportsCenter or whatever, and they're going to make a narrative out of the latest NFL playoff game. Whether it's just a bunch of like grown ass men doing sports stuff, they find a way to extract narrative out of it. Um, and wrestling is just making that like kind of sublimated narrative, the text. Yeah. It is like lifting that up and highlighting it and making it the point of the thing. Like you still have all the athletic amazingness and agility on display in wrestling. It's just that they make the narrative the key central point to it. And that all the cool stuff that happens, whether it's Jeff Hardy doing senton bombs off the top of a ladder or something, that's all stuff that, those feel like flourishes because the narrative base of it is so sound. Um, so yeah, I, I think wrestling analogies rule because it is really just another way to break down narrative um, with terms that a lot of people are familiar with or that are very applicable to the kind of man versus man, man versus nature, man versus society stories we tend to analyze on this and other podcasts. Um, I've also just realized that earlier uh, I said uh, Ed Hardy, which is a shoe brand and not Matt Hardy. Um, it sure is. That was painful. I was sitting there going, that was not right. What was wrong about that? Yeah, the not the shoe brand is Matt Hardy. Fuck. <laughs> That's another way to age myself there. I'm painful. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. And I was a good ally and was not going to correct the <laughs> correct you here. So, um, but yeah, uh, to all our listeners, if you have any fond memories of like the Edge and Christian versus Jeff and Matt Hardy ladder oh matches God. from about 20 years ago, <gasps> please send us an email or send us a link to those matches. I think me and Emily might enjoy watching them again. <laughs> Uh, so aside from a lot of wrestling talk, our <laughs> breakdown today has been pretty dry and mechanical, but you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep is a lot of fun. It's a lot of coordinated stunt work, fighting at a scale I'd never seen before. It's a mix of aesthetic influences and just a flurry of cool visuals and cool sounds and cool moments. So why don't we just say some stuff we like in this battle? Uh, Emily, why don't you hit me with a couple? Yes, uh, I'm going to leapfrog one uh, of great importance to me, which is Bernard Hill. Um, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again until the day I die, but um, this movie in particular, but these movies writ large, would not succeed if not for Bernard Hill. Um, it's not to say that they're bad except for him. He's the only thing saving it, but he is such a linchpin of this series and and he does, um, he does the big moments when you need the big moments and he does the understated moments flawlessly when you need the understated moments. And and Theoden here in Helm's Deep is is just 
everything that this battle needs at exactly the right moment and, and is this perfect counter. He's the sort of he's he's grown into the, himself as the sort of stately and, and noble king who has sort of finally returned to reclaim his throne. And and when you put him in comparison, even at his weakest points, to Aragorn, who is vastly more frenetic and sort of youthful feeling and and not quite tethered down in the way that you know, not comporting himself necessarily as a king ought to. Um, it is such this fascinating uh, this fascinating dynamic between the two of them. Um, and 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 anchored so well. I think the reason, you know, Aragorn is able to go off and do his Errol Flynn shit all the way through this is because they've got the anchor of Bernard Hill and his, his sort of um, pumping out massive nobility the whole way through this to, to, to show that there is some sort of sense of coherency and leadership to it. And of course, later in the battle, when that all breaks down, it feels all the much more painful because he's been this kind of um, paragon of, uh, of kingliness here. Yeah, he's been a rock. We even talked about it in our Helm's Deep prep, where Aragorn's just like openly questioning strategy and like <laughs> rhetoric. And Theoden's like, dude, shut up. I'm just trying to make sure these people don't kill themselves before they have to fight. Um, I think he's just great. Um, and because he's not involved in the action like Aragorn is, he has to kind of be like both the like main strategy guy in terms of you go defend the gate, you go hold the wall, all that kind of stuff. And But he's also like our narrator a little bit. So he's like, oh, so it begins. And then it's like, oh, is this all you can conjure, Saruman? Is that it? Uh, you know, like he's kind of like telling us how we should be feeling because sometimes battles can be overwhelming to like absorb and like really know what truly is happening, who's winning, who isn't. But having Bernard Hill to deliver those lines and just like say it, like it really, really helps. I don't think it needs it because I do think this battle is filmed well enough where it wouldn't need those bits of dialogue. But Theoden and Bernard Hill actually makes those lines add something as opposed to feel like they're hand-holding for like people who might be confused or something. Yep. I also really want to call out um, when the wall gets blown up, Theoden just has this great dumb looking face on him. Like what the hell was that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it just like his eyes are bulging out. He has no, he doesn't have words. He's just completely, completely dumbfounded. Um, just a great bit of face acting that I like. Yeah. Well, and this is the other thing. I think he's such a great anchor for this, this serious thing that is ongoing for the men, which is that um, between the elves and the orcs and, and true magic being, being there, being present in the world, these guys are really having a fairy tale come to life in front of them. And, and they should be reacting acting in a historical sense um, exactly as we would react if some fucking elves walked in right now um, and and Bernard Hill is really holding that down that level of fear and panic and you know uh, gunpowder is quite a prosaic thing um, in not just in the world but like in, in this story as well it's not high magic um, but it's still a terrifying bit of almost magic. And and so for Theoden, for Bernard Hill as Theoden to really nail that look and to really convey just how fucking horrifying all of this is, is, is just a really masterful bit of, of character work there. So one thing I really like is uh, the precision of the Elvish archers. Um, as we've been learning through the first, you know, four or five hours so far of the Lord of the Rings that we have seen, um, especially me who had not read the books, did not know books exist. Um, <laughs> like Legolas was our, oh, wow, elves have really good aim. Um, so to kind of see that on scale is really fun, um, especially when they're just like arrows that are just whizzing by Aragorn's head um, as he's like charging with the sword. It's very similar to how the arrows are flying by Elrond's head in Galadriel's prologue, yep. which was always like, huh, that seems dangerous to me. Um, but then knowing about these elves or at least how they're 
made for these movies to be like Legolas style, you know, snipers. Um, I think it's really great. I just love like that they're all shooting and nailing targets. It's just just really cool. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy that. It's a lot different than the archers in Braveheart where half the arrows hit something. <laughs> some make it into a man's ass um, and then uh, some just like completely miss. So it, it is kind of cool that they have this whole battalion of snipers here for, with the elves. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the elves have never looked better. Um, you know, the, the elvish mm-hmm. armor in the series um, is just it's just brilliant looking. It's slightly kind of unnatural to our eyes it doesn't feel like it should work as as armor it certainly doesn't look like armor that is like tethered to our like western euro um historical Mm -hmm. understanding of what armor should look like but it it feels like armor it serves the purpose it looks slick as hell it conveys a lot about like who and what the elves are as a culture although admittedly a monoculture in this movie but nevertheless they look cool it's just great and it's a nice little additional layer of texture here that that i think when we get to later things like Haldir dying, it, it really sets them apart and and makes Haldir's death feel all the more important because you are so consistently reminded that he is not like the men and his death cannot be as almost meaningless as the men's deaths are. Yeah, I really like what they're doing with the armor here because it's not just like standard plate and mail. It's like these interlocking or weaving like metal like I don't, I don't know what to call it. I don't. I, I do not have an armorer's terminology here, <laughs> uh, but it's exactly right. And it also has, despite kind of the bluish pallor of everything, like the colors kind of pop, like the little gold plating and like the purplish like cloaks. Um, like I feel like it all kind of sings in its own kind of muted way in these scenes. Yep. I think I've mentioned almost all of the other ones just through the course of this episode. Like I like Gimli cannonballing off the top of the wall or the sympathetic nature. I think the marathon runner is a really fun idea. Um, but I have to defend probably the most controversial of the flourishes in this action scene. That is, of course, Legolas shield surfing. <laughs> There's, I mean, you heard me describe it. He like yeets like seven dudes in four seconds with like three arrows and a shield. Um, it's it's just that level of goofy that I can tolerate. Like, I like this a little bit more than, like, him, like, taking on the Oliphant. Mm-hmm. I actually like the Oliphant. It's just, like, him sliding down the trunk and then giving, like, Jim Halpert face at Gimli. It's, like, whatever. Um, but I feel like this is, like, it's not, like, that insane of a feat. No. Like, it's not, like, he's, like, flying down that many stairs or anything. And the shield's already there. There's plenty of shields laying around. Uh, we've already seen Legless do a bunch of stuff. But to me, it's the music, I think, that really, like, triggers something because it's, like, a fast-paced version of the Fellowship theme that starts just as he jumps on the shield. And it very specifically reminds me of a middle of Star Wars 1977 uh, when Luke and Leia are in that little, like, chasm waiting across the bridge. And then the stormtroopers start shooting on them, and then Luke opens fire. And right at that moment, the main Star Wars theme comes in with just a slightly higher tempo than it is like in the main title sequence yep. and it just like it's that like rush of adrenaline that's a combination of action and music that i just think works so well um i love it i'm pretty sure this is where um they decided to add shield surfing to breath of the wild <laughs> they saw this oh, and yeah. like this is dope as hell we got to do it um i am obviously i'm very defensive of legolas and how he's interpreted <laughs> for these films but i i actually think the shield surfing is like legitimately dope i'm not apologizing for it i'm explaining to you why you are wrong uh you the, you the proverbial listener not you emily um i will happily denigrate our listeners but i would never speak meanly of emily so and that's a guarantee um yeah no i i mean i 
I don't know, maybe in some of my more, more cynical moments about these movies, I would have like rolled my eyes at the shield surfing, but it is great. And and I think it's also like for me, um, the the Raiders March um, is the peak of music. And, and I feel like the highest honor I can bestow on any scene um, action scene is if I could accidentally slip in the into the Raiders theme while I'm thinking about that mm. scene. And I think, you know, the Star Wars bit, obviously, because it's the same. It's John Williams just doing his high and fast trumpets, which he loves to do. But here, this is also another one where you could accidentally sort of slip in uh, the, the sort of indie theme and, and it would make perfect sense to me. And it would, you know, you wouldn't lose or necessarily gain anything from that addition or that replacement. And and I think, you know, the more things are like Indiana Jones, uh, the more action things are like Indiana Jones, um, certain Indiana Joneses, the better. So we're going to skip on the token token book section for now, mostly because we've run really long on this episode. <laughs> Otherwise, we also have a second Helm's Deep episode to go, uh, which is maybe a little lighter since we don't have as much setup. So we are going to uh, maybe talk about some of the book stuff related to Helm's Deep in that second episode. But that'll be after we uh, check in with the ants with Marion Pippin. And I think we even check in with us Gilead before we return. So, uh, as we're wrapping up our episode, we want to start reading off our Elvish names. Just a reminder, uh, we will, if you sign up at the $5 or $10 level, you can get an Elvish name. Um, that's usually best facilitated by jumping into our Patreon Discord and joining our Name Translations channel, because um, that way you can feed us things you like, places you've lived, um, and that way we can work on an Elvish name that isn't just based on your like first name and last name, but perhaps based around your interests or some defining aspect of you. I also just want to apologize and kind of make clear that we record these episodes sometimes over a month in advance. Um, so sometimes uh, you might not hear your Elvish name for quite a while once you've signed up um, because we like to work ahead as much as we do. It works better for us, but we understand that that might, um, you know, you really want to hear your Elvish name right on air. So if it ever does become an issue, please just reach out to us on Patreon or the Discord. Uh, we'll come up with some solution to make sure your names are heard and that you're given due attention with an Elvish name. So with all that out of the way, Emily, do you want to start out reading our $10 patrons? Yes. Thank you to Lathamana Palinka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Thanks, Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungal. Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Ithranor of Kokarthan. Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Iranwo Ar Minyatar. <laughs> like Wamelma, a.k.a. Zach Newman. Uh, Sal Quendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Iranian Taranon, a.k.a. Matthias Hansen. And we want to give a shout out to Jonathan DeHaan, who signed up at our $10 level, does not yet have an Elvish name. So please join us in the Discord or send us a message if you want one. And along those lines, we want to shout out um, a couple of people who have signed up who do not yet have Elvish names, but I do want you guys to be recognized. So thanks a lot to Eric Peterson, Kayla Crosby, Dave Scowler, and Steve Niemeyer. Um, and I apologize if I'm butchering your real names. Uh, please submit for an Elvish name so I can butcher that next time around. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. 
Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get early access to episodes and bonus content. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be adamantly insisting that there must be a bridge at the Battle of Sterling Bridge and Braveheart to the interest and entertainment of exactly nobody. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethroglier and Drithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.